You're listening to the Joelle Martin Mastery Podcast, home of the two-hour deep dive interview with gold, platinum, and multi-platinum bands, including Stained, Blue Rodeo, The Arkells, Finger Eleven, Big Wreck, Moist, Bedouin Soundclash, I Mother Earth, Ill Scarlet, Neverending White Lights, Thornley, and many more. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast as well as share, comment, and like. Now let's dive in to today's episode. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of the podcast. Thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. We are joined by a very special guest. He's achieved a level of mastery as a Juno-nominated singer-songwriter, as well as a keynote speaker, uh, speaking to people around the world, providing uh, uh, inspiration, positivity, and joy. Uh, So welcome to the podcast, Peter Katz. Peter, how are you? And how's the weather today in beautiful Guadalajara, Mexico, as I return from my cold, overcast walk here in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada? Nice to see you, Joel. Um, It's uh, great to be here. And it's actually quite lovely in Guadalajara, but by Guadalajara standards, it's actually slightly overcast and cool. But to be clear, I'm wearing shorts and uh, it's still hot. So <laughs> it's, a, it's a no pants party in here. I'm actually wearing my my sunniest, brightest shirt in honor of, of your location. It's got little pineapples on it. So there you go. Oh, nice. Oh, yeah, I see that. I see that. Nice. Nice. Yes, sir. So we're going to do a a two-hour deep dive. We're going to go through your entire discography. We're going to talk about what's got you most excited today, your speaking engagements, possibly some new music. And I, I like to start by sharing with our listeners how I know the guests, just to show the importance of, of networking, of, of building community, of fostering relationships. So I actually put on my detective hat And I was able to go all the way back nine years ago to the very first time we communicated. So I found a message that I sent you. And here it is. This is from December 27th, 2013. Uh, So Mm -hmm. here, here it is. I say, hey, Peter, just last night, I found one of your songs on my iPhone from when Dangerous was the iTunes free download of the week. Great tune. Which of your albums should be my first purchase? And you kindly responded, Hey, Joel, happy to hear it. Thanks for asking. I think the live album might actually be the best place to start. But if you're not into live, then maybe Still Mind Still or First of the Last to Know. Happy with both of them. Working on new stuff too. Take care. Thanks for asking, Peter. So that is our first Mm -hmm. communication, me as a fan reaching out. Uh, I then saw you perform at Celebration Square in Mississauga on July 1st, 2015. And then a few years later, on October 27th, 2017, at the Living Arts Center, I brought out a girlfriend at the time uh, to Mm. see you. Uh, That was another great concert. So that is where we've interacted. Uh, We've been in touch a little bit online. I see your updates. I'm in the loop with what's going on. Uh, So those are my memories when I think back to how we ended up here today oh that's awesome well i i always do my very best to uh respond to to people when they reach out and and uh so i'm i'm glad that to, that you got a message back and uh and yeah that's 2013 that's wild that that was almost 10 years ago <laughs> that is that is a a lifetime ago so it's awesome that you wrote back you know because if if you you know sent me a nasty message back i'd still have to read it which wouldn't be a good start right. to this podcast so uh yeah. Let's let's go all the way back to the beginning. So you're you're clearly passionate about music. I mean, you've you've 
kind of plan your entire life around music. So where does this start from? Where does where does this passion for music start? Is there maybe an earliest music memory that kind of jumps out at you? Yeah, I think there, there's sort of like two two phases to it, so maybe more. But, um, you know, like my earliest musical memory is uh, when I was like four years old, um, my parents gifted me a violin. I walked in my bedroom, there was a violin on my bed. Now, I don't recall necessarily maybe i had said that i was interested in violin i like my great grandfather was a violinist there were sort of violins in the family but um for whatever reason there was a violin there and i got excited about it and uh, i i started violin lessons and then i'm the youngest of four kids and you know my mom played piano um my dad was always sort of picking up different instruments and and sort of dabbling and but all my siblings played piano and and various other instruments and and so there was a lot of music around me and um and so, you know, started on violin, started on piano and uh, like, I loved playing, um, but I didn't really love the, the practicing. <laughs> like I, I didn't love what I had to practice. Like I didn't love the, the sort of like methodical scales and learning these classical pieces and that kind of stuff. And thankfully on the, on the violin side, I actually did Suzuki method, which was all about ear training and you would just listen to something and then you'd have to play it back. And I liked that. Um, so I did music as a kid. I didn't really see it as anything that I was going to do. It was just something that I did. I enjoyed doing it, but mostly when I was playing the piano, I liked just improvising or playing pop songs that I liked. Um, and it wasn't really until I started the guitar when I was around 12 years old that something kind of shifted where when I had the guitar in my hand, for whatever reason, I was like, oh, I want to I want to write songs like there was this thing where I was like, I could learn a G, a C and a D. I would go into my guitar song books and realize that most of the songs that were written throughout music history were basically those three chords. And so that made me feel like, oh, well, if it's just three chords, four chords, you know, put in the minor six in there, um, then. I could probably do this too. And it was really when I started writing my own songs and experiencing that rush of creating something that literally did not exist. And now it existed because I had born it into existence. That's when I was like, oh, this is, this is kind of a next level thing for me. And my love for music was not really about, oh, I just want to play guitar or I just want to sing somebody else's songs. It's I want to create songs and put those out into the world. And when I actually sort of fully committed to my music career, I think that's the thing that made me drive through the snowstorms and sleep on the floors and, and like play to zero people um, because I, I was like, well, I, I have this vision of, of what I want to do. And it involves writing songs and, and putting them out into the world. You realize that all you needed was four chords and the truth, and that by knowing four the, chords and the, the, truth. the yeah. four chords, you could now play the entire Beatles catalog, which is which is pretty awesome. Well, I mean, there's more yeah, but, complex <laughs> stuff, but you know what I'm saying. But when I was when I was first starting to to play, I, I literally had a Beatles songbook, and I would avoid any songs that were like in C because they'd have an F in them, and like the F was the bar chord. So I, I really just st steered steered clear of any songs that had F. But once I mastered the F. Then I was free to uh, when I was free to go anywhere. The uh, the dreaded F that every yes. uh, every 
uh, amateur guitar player has nightmares about. Uh, and what's exactly. funny is, is you know, I know you as a, a piano player, as a guitarist, as a singer, but you actually started on the violin. So right away, I'm, I'm learning things I didn't know. Um, you, you mentioned guitar was around 12 years old. Where did the singing come in? Shortly after well, the guitar, I guess? Well, it's funny. I, I didn't I didn't really think of myself as a great singer. Like I I, I liked singing. Um, but I was at summer camp actually, and they were doing this is when I was around 10 or 11, they were doing a production of Greece, of course. And uh and I auditioned for this play and they were like, Hey, you're you're a pretty good singer. And I I didn't get the lead role or anything, but I, I kind of got this little taste of being in a musical. And, and then I, I think I was just kind of singing more and more. And the next summer when I went back, I think my voice had improved and they were doing Little Shop of Horrors. And when the, the musical director heard me sing, she cast me as Seymour, the lead. And all of a sudden everybody was like, hey, you, you, you can really sing. Um, and it's funny to me um, because when I listen to my very, very, very old albums, which I no longer... Uh, sell anymore. Um, I really sort of hear that musical theater influence that I needed to, like, I really sing very, very differently than I, than I used to. Um, but that was, it was kind of through musical theater that I, I was encouraged, I think, to, to sing and work on my voice. And, and, uh, you know, as I'm sure, you know, your voice is like a bicep and the more you work it, then the stronger it gets and the greater range you have and the greater control and the greater kind of nuance you can put into it. So, um, but yeah, it was, it was summer camp that, that planted the seed of, of, of singing. And, and I would also say it was songwriting that planted the seed of seed of singing because it's one thing to say, Hey, here's a song I wrote and just play a G, a C and a D. It's another thing. Like when you get the melody in there, then you really can say like, Oh, that's, that's the song right there. As as a songwriter, how much of a of an asset is it to be able to play guitar and piano to help you write? I, I know a few songwriters that they they just sing and they they write, and it's like they're almost always waiting on another musician to be available. So, do you see that as like a superpower as a songwriter to play instruments? Well, here's here's what I say. It's funny because I actually over the last 20 years i've done a million songwriting workshops and one of my one of my favorite things is to do songwriting for non-songwriters um it's actually something that i do sometimes in in kind of my my speaking world is go into a group of people and kind of open up the songwriting um mystery box for them and what i say to people is is don't let that be an impediment to you writing a song because you can just clap your hands and sing mary had a little lamb and you're like there's a song right um so it's it, it need not be um something that prohibits you from getting into songwriting however when i think about my own songwriting process I even just like to move from the guitar to the piano just, just to get my brain kind of entering the melody from a different place. I also like to actually step away from the guitar and the piano and pull up a drum beat or pull up a bass line or pull up a synth pad or just, so I think having those different, or a ukulele or just kind of anything to kind of get me out of my, my typical rhythms. I think when you're playing an acoustic guitar, you tend to, fall into more of like folk idioms as far as as the melodies you tend to write whereas all of a sudden you put it on a piano and that changes or all of a sudden you start with a drum beat and all of a sudden there's 
there's different ways of putting the melodies together. So I think as you go deeper and deeper as a songwriter, you almost want to have all these different access points so you can kind of break your patterns and, and enter the songwriting process from different realms. But certainly as an entry point to songwriting, I would say start with what you have. And if you just have two spoons in your hand that you're banging together, then go for it. And uh, I think you can you can write great songs that way. So as someone that plays both guitar and piano, when you're writing a song, how do you decide which song should be more guitar driven or more piano driven? Does it just speak to you naturally? Which one kind of pulls ahead? I mean, often it's just what's whatever's in front of me. Um, I just was working on a new new album and the producer brought this uh, baritone uh, it's called like a rubber bridge guitar and I never played on anything like that before. And it, it, it just sounded so cool and it had two pickups in it. So when you brought it into pro tools and sent like a stereo image of it, it, it just like put you into this other world. And that's the guitar that he brought. And we ended up writing basically the entire album on that instrument because that's what was there and it sounded cool and different. And um, so I, I often find that, like right now, I'm 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 I don't live in Guadalajara. I'm I'm here right now for a couple of weeks, but I I only have a guitar with me. But my partner also has a, a ukulele, and so noodling around on the ukulele, having the guitar here, that's probably where I'll start ideas. Um, when I'm at home and there's a piano there, I love sitting down and starting an idea at the piano. But I also like moving things from different instruments. And and if I think back on just the recording process that I was just in a couple of weeks ago. We like with one song, we started it on the guitar and we had built up the whole thing, but then we added some piano. We actually ended up muting the guitar and it became a piano song in the production process. So I think you just kind of follow your instincts. But what I think I'm trying to share is that part of your job as a as a songwriter and, and just as a creator or as a designer, like I, I do a lot of like event design and this kind of stuff now, it's like it's always to be willing to like scrumple up the piece of paper, throw it in the garbage and start again. Cause you can always walk over and, and un, uh, you know, look at that piece of paper that you scrunched up, but what might come if you're willing to throw it out and start again and, and see what happens. Um, and I think a lot of the creative process is actually about getting out of your own way. It's about turning off your, your thinking brain and allowing flow to happen and allowing surprises to happen. And, and so you're always just sort of trying to trick yourself um, to turn off that part of your brain. And, and so I just think diversity of, of instruments, playing around with it, being willing to have it be bad, have it not work, try it on different instruments. That's the most important thing. And as, as a kid, was there anything that you wanted to be outside of a musician so you're saying you might you were in in a few plays did you ever want to be an actor or anything else yeah so the first thing i wanted to be was i wanted to be an engineer my my grandfather uh, was in the second world war as a fighter pilot and then he had a career in the military and as an engineer and i just like i just thought that was uh the coolest thing and and i had an affinity for for math and physics and those kind of things and so i thought that's what i was gonna gonna do but then I also had this this little love for music and and it was actually theater was was the first thing that kind of pulled me away from 
engineering. And I actually, I, I moved to Toronto. I went to Ryerson, now the Toronto Metropolitan University. Um, and, uh, and I did a Bachelor of Fine Arts in theater performance. So that was actually my foray into the arts. But it was over my time in university in the theater program that I really anchored in music. And actually we did in my fourth year, we did a production of a play called The Laramie Project, um, which maybe you're familiar with it, but just in case any listeners are not, it's this really powerful play about the life and, and death of Matthew Shepard, who was a, uh, a young student from Laramie, Wyoming, who was a victim of a hate crime because he was gay. And um, just this really beautiful play. And the director of that play knew that I had been writing songs. I was playing the open mics at, at the university. I was playing open mics kind of all around town. And uh, at the end of the play, she didn't feel like it was really appropriate to do this big kind of curtain call, like everybody clapping, like, hi, mom, kind of a thing. She wanted more of a, a poignant moment. And so her vision was rather than the audience, uh, rather than the cast coming out and doing this big bow, why don't we come out and sing a song? And that will be sort of our thank you and our acknowledgement to the audience for having been there. And she asked me to write that song. And so I wrote the song called The Fence. And, um, you know, the play ended, the lights went out, I came out, I played the first half of the song. And then I wrote this four part harmony ooh kind of thing in the middle. And then uh, for the for the ending and everybody came out with candles in the circle it was it was just this kind of like amazing moment and um and it was at the cast party uh that night after our final performance that the director walked up to me and said hey i think you could do this for your career i think you i think maybe you're you're like she didn't say you're in the wrong lane but i think she said i think you could be a professional singer songwriter like and what you did in this context was was very special. And, and so that was me, that was kind of the transition point of me moving away from the idea of, of doing theater into doing music as a, as my full-time thing. And, and that song, the fence, the Matthew Shepard song, that's on one of the, that's on, is it the 2010 album or the 20? Yeah. It's on first of the last to know. Yeah. yeah it's on first last to know. Yeah. Okay. I was going to ask who that was and, and you just, you just explained. So. But it's actually it's on the 2004 album, uh, <laughs> the One Minute Mile Man, because I th that was 2004 that I that I wrote that. But um, but that album uh, has been gently banished. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll talk about that in a in a yeah, little bit. Yeah, uh, I yeah. had a few questions about that. If if I met you at 12 years old, who would I be meeting? Yeah. Well, 12 years old was a pretty big time in my life. Um, so that was actually right when my parents started getting divorced um, and music was the music was my saving grace at that time. So um, in fact, I, the, when I started getting into the speaking work, I actually have a whole keynote uh, about it's called why I seek discomfort. And it's all about sort of my musical journey and meeting and playing with Glenn Hansard and all, all these kind of things. Um, but the, uh, I tell the story about being 12 years old and my parents were selling our house that I had grown up in. And obviously it was this hugely emotional time. And uh, one of the things that happened as, as the house was getting cleared out was this old guitar came up from the basement, which was my dad's old guitar and strings were all broken and, and rusty. And, and uh, I kind of tuned up that guitar and that was like me falling in love with the guitar. And um, so you would have met a kid who, 
was putting a lot of focus uh, and uh, energy and uh, trauma healing into playing the guitar. I was uh, I became obsessed with the Smashing Pumpkins were my favorite band. And uh, I like literally grew out my hair. I only wore the zero long sleeve black T-shirt and uh, I just learned Siamese Dream and then Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness from cover to cover. And, and so I was kind of like obsessed with music. I was, I was a little bit lost just going through this huge transition with my family, but that was me really getting into music. And, and, uh, and I was also a really earnest kid. Uh, so I also a little bit after that kind of started getting involved in student council and that kind of stuff and organizing talent shows with like anything to get music happening at the school. So that, that was kind of me at that time. Is is Siamese Dream, Siamese Dream, is uh, Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, is, is that the best double album of all time? What do you think? It's up there. It's definitely up there. Up there with uh, the wall, I think. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but when I was a kid, my favorite double album was the Billy Joel Greatest Hits, but I don't know that that qualifies as, a, as, a, as an album per se. But I mean, when Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness came out. That was undeniable. Yeah, it was just the coolest thing. And it had like the giant booklet and it was just that that piano opening to the whole thing was just unbelievable. And uh, yeah, it blew my mind. But but I, I actually like Siamese Dream for me is was was like my desert island. I, I just love Siamese like, Dream rock. had a today on it, right? Yeah, yeah. It has today on it. But my, my favorite song, we, we, I did, we played today like with my kind of jam band in the basement, but um, Cherub Rock was, I actually have a recording of me singing and playing Cherub Rock when I was 12 or 13 years old. It's pretty funny. There's some, <laughs> some cool guitar parts on that song. Cherub oh yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And Jimmy Chamberlain on the drums was just like amazing. So I loved it. Man, loved, with, loved with, it. with your, with your current sound of music, like your sound as a singer songwriter, I, I didn't, I didn't assume you'd be a Smashing Pumpkins fan. So uh, that that that's pretty cool. I uh, I saw the the Pumpkins in 2000. I saw them at the Somersault Festival in Ottawa and unfortunately they had so many technical problems like uh, equipment wasn't working like power mm. outage there was all this stuff where I think at one point Billy Corgan who at, at some points in his career had had more of an attitude than other points right and uh i think he got so fed up with all the equipment stuff that he just grabbed an acoustic guitar and like walked right. to the front of the stage and he's like i'm gonna give you all i can regardless of what's going on with this equipment so it was memorable anyways yeah and i i i, my, I mean i will always have a place in my heart for for the smashing pumpkins but i think my my fandom sort of peaked uh after after melancholy and the infinite sadness and and then I, I also was really getting into Radiohead, and then and then from that I sort of really went down the the slope of singer songwriters. But yeah, Smashing Pumpkins really spoke to me at that time of going through my parents' divorce and sort of angst and 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 kind of processing those feelings. That was uh, that was my soundtrack. You you didn't follow the Smashing Pumpkins into their goth their goth phase no after. no really honestly it was it was it was siamese dream melancholy infinite sadness i get i guess gish was their first album which i went sort of digging for um but it, it didn't speak to me in the same way as as those two albums did and at 12 years old you mentioned that the the family house was being sold w were you still in montreal at that point 
Yeah, I was still in Montreal. So, um, there, you know, there was a, there was a couple of transition years, um, where like, you know, my parents each moved to different locations. I, I lived mostly with my mom for a couple of years. And then actually by the time I was 16, I moved out completely on my own. Um, and I, I had an apartment in Montreal for, for two years by myself before I moved to Toronto. How how much do you think growing up in Montreal influenced you as a person and as a musician? I mean, later on, we're going to talk about there's a French album that you release. So is that is that the uh, French environment that you grew up in? Yeah, I mean, I often feel like I, I didn't experience the 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 depth of Montreal because I left Montreal when I was 18. And so the the sort of years of really being involved in the music scene in Montreal. And like, I, I wasn't really there for that. I was in Toronto for that. Um, but the thing that I really appreciated about Montreal, and I guess also just kind of credit to my parents is they would definitely take me to cultural happenings. And, and at that time, at that age, like any kind of spending money that I had, I would be buying concert tickets, but I was going to like the arena shows like, a, you know, the smashing pumpkins and Radiohead and Coldplay and, um, my first concert was the Eagles. Um, so oh, I, I you're wasn't spoiled kind of... for life if your first concert <laughs> yeah. is the Eagles. I well, the first concert was the Eagles, and the thing I remember the most was Joe Walsh was handed a new guitar every song for three hours, and I was like, "That's the coolest thing I've ever seen!" Like, where where is he keeping all these guitars, and who's this guy that's handing him these guitars? And this this mythology of a guitar tech and having more than one guitar was was born in that moment. Isn't it isn't it funny how once someone is ridiculously wealthy like the Eagles that's when they get just an unlimited amount of sponsored guitars provided to them you yeah, know yeah, the, the guys yeah. that don't actually need them for free are the ones that get right. them all, you know yeah well he had a he had an incredible array of guitars i was just totally focused on that do you, do you think having the Eagles as your first concert that by osmosis of having all those incredible harmonies seep into you, that that's where your amazing harmonies come from, that they were planted early in you. I wonder, it's like I, my, uh, my Eagles fandom was very brief. <laughs> like, I, I think, like I, I, I still totally love and respect the Eagles, but I, I, I never like went deep on the Eagles. I, I basically knew, Hotel California, like hell freezes over. Um, Life in the fast lane. Yeah, like th that. That's that's what I knew. It, it was the first kind of moment in time that I was like old enough to go to a concert. My sister and I went together, but I I barely knew anything about the Eagles. Um, I loved the concert; it was awesome. But then I kind of, I kind of went on to other things. But I I mean, they're an undeniably amazing band, and but I don't know that that they were sort of like a, a deeper influence on what I would come to. I mean, maybe, maybe it was there in my subconscious. Yes. They're uh, they either just played Ottawa or they're about to play Ottawa. So they're right. They're, they're here in the area somewhere. Uh, if, if you and I were friends at 16 years old and you invited me over to listen to music, what albums would you be playing for me? Well, you would have come over to my apartment in uh, St. Anne de Bellevue, uh, which is, uh, suburb of Montreal and um let's see what would it be what would we be listening to I think so that I, would be about 98 ish I would think somewhere around yeah 
I was starting to get into the Dave Matthews band. Actually, I was, um, I, uh, it's funny. I wasn't like a giant Dave Matthews fan, but, uh, some guys I knew had a Dave Matthews cover band and they knew that I was a singer and they asked me to audition for the band because they were looking for a singer and I got the job. And so I was all of a sudden singing all this Dave Matthews music that I had to learn. And I, I kind of got immersed in it and, and loved, I just loved the, the live show that they'd put on and like, you know, Carter Beaufort on the drums and just like the, just the whole, the whole musicianship that was on display. Um, I, I really got into that. What else was I was, I was starting to, to dabble at 16. I was starting to dabble in like the singer songwriters, like, Leonard Cohen, Joni Mitchell, that kind of stuff. I was Bob Dylan. I was just, just the three greatest of all time. Yeah. Just the, just three greatest of all time. Um, so I was starting to dabble in that. I was also to be fully transparent. I was really into musical theater at that time. That was when I, I had um, switched into the creative arts and I was doing theater at John Abbott college. And, and I discovered the musical rent and uh, I actually, a friend of mine, we were 16, like just freshly got driver's licenses and drove to New York city. Um, and you could do this thing where you'd like wait in line and they'd have like cheapy tickets on the same day. And we went to go see rent and, and like my dream then was to play Roger in rent. And, and I knew I could sing rent from cover to cover. Um, so I was listening to a lot of that. This is, this is, I don't want to be embarrassed by that. This is that's this is my history, right? Um, I, I normally having... ask if if my guest has some guilty pleasures. You know, I say there like I like Nickelback, I like Justin Bieber. Right. So I I in, right. I enable them by saying mine yeah. first. So hey, yeah, Justin Rent, Bieber is not a guilty. Justin oh, he's the Bieber, best. Just, oh my gosh, Justin purpose, Bieber albums. The purpose album. I I posted unreal a a very um, controversial post when purpose <laughs> came out. It was yeah. the same year that Adele put out 25 and, yeah. uh, you know, two of the biggest albums, both nominated for album of the year, obviously Adele, uh, critical darling goes on to win album of the year. Yeah. And I made a post saying, I believe that purpose is better than Adele's 25 album. So just, I put that out there. I am on your team. I, I love Adele. I've, I've seen Adele. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Purpose changed the world like it it completely changed what's possible for music and purpose paved the way for billy eilish and phineas making an album in their bedroom like that whole sound of like an album produced on a computer basically but that has heart and soul and just like like that album was the album that changed the world and and all of the artists that have that have followed like that was the album. So I, um, I think that album's incredible. And, uh, and I, yeah, I, I will, I will say that without shame. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If, if Adele's 21 album was out the same year as purpose, now we have a real competition yeah, right, right, right. there, but, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I was actually, I didn't, I was going to bring up for your 2020 album, which sonically yeah. is is different than the more straight up singer songwriter stuff of the previous albums, I was actually going to bring up that I hear a little bit of the Justin Bieber Purpose album influence in there. And I didn't know if you were I know that you cover uh, the song Sorry from that album, but I didn't know if 
that was actually an influence on that album. And now I'm thinking that maybe it is a little bit of an influence there. Oh yeah. I mean, that was 1 million percent a reference point that I, that I brought into the studio. Uh, like I'm obsessed with Julia Michaels, who's, I, I think she, she actually co-wrote Sorry. I'm actually, fun fact, Julia Michaels, when I posted my story cover, put a little heart comment, which was, which was pretty awesome. And, she's, she's actually um, amazing. I really like she's her. She's a beast of a songwriter like her. And if you really kind of go deep on Julia Michaels and, and look at who she's written with and some of the songs that are out in the world, it's, it, she's all over it. And I mean, her own, her own um, solo album that she put out, not in chronological order. I mean, that song, I wish your exes were dead is, is just like, is a masterpiece of a song. Um, so yeah, I, I, I definitely, most of my career, I was more of a, a, a Puritan uh, singer songwriter. And I thought pop music was not real music and anybody can do that and four chords and blah, blah, blah. Um, but there is a giant, there is a giant range of pop music and the greatest pop music of all time. People think, ah, oh, it's just a pop song. I mean, it is masterfully done and 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 i just developed a really deep respect for pop music and and to be honest i also was going through a divorce and and one of my ways of dealing with that divorce was running a lot and and the music that i had in my ears was not leonard cohen uh singing 47 verses to me in somber tone i i love leonard cohen with, he's like the best um but that's not the music that was resonating with me it was you know purpose and it, it was was this pop music that has a real heart and soul to it um and i fell in love with that and i thought to myself what if i made an album like this i never thought that i was allowed to make an album like that but i thought well why the heck not and uh and and but i still wanted i still had some some guidelines, right? So like in pop music, in pop music, sometimes people just try to get away with the production. And so you're, you're, you're kind of polishing, <laughs> this is maybe crass, but it's like sort of like polishing a turd. Like it's not really a, a great song, but there's enough of a hook in there that you kind of get away with it. But the really, really, really great songs, I believe you could hand a 12 year old, a guitar, give them a little chord chart with the four chords that are in there and they could hack it out around a campfire and you'd be like, that's a great song. And so that was kind of my, my litmus test for, for my own album. I said, okay, I'm going to make a pop album, but these all have to be able to exist in a, in a, in a format where the, the foundational song, the, the care and attention for the lyrics, the, the, the melody, all these things have been tended to and, the production and the the pop economy and all these kind of things will be will be the thing that takes it to the next level but it's not the foundation of it yeah i always say a great song is a great song regardless of genre so for example you could yeah. take a, a taylor swift song and if you had metallica play it as a metallica type song it would still be great and you could take a metallica you could take nothing else matters or whatever unforgiven and give it to taylor swift and if she played it in her way either acoustic or pop it would be a great song those are my examples of of how i look oh at yeah it. 
don't get me started on Taylor Swift. Folklore is, is yeah, I'm a big fan. That album is is I mean that that folklore album in particular was was the one that really I I mean uh, 1989 or is is amazing and and uh, but folklore for me is that album is just next level um yeah. incredible so almost all of her albums are like all time great and she just announced a new album that's on its way I saw that because putting out three albums in like a ten month period during the pandemic wasn't enough so she has another one on the way and yeah talking about you know guilty pleasures i have two things to say that that have to do with julia michaels taylor swift and and spotify so um i love spot i love maybe not the company but the the app spotify like i listen to three plus hours of music a day and two things i have a great songs playlist and you know i have like 40 hours worth of music on there anytime i hear a great song i add it so that's like the highest praise i can give and Mm. uh the Julia Michaels album. So it came out, I don't know, maybe two years ago, that not in chronological order. Uh, I had that as a runner up on my top 10 albums of that year. And I think I took at least half of the album and moved it to my great songs playlist. That's how good that album is. And then with Taylor Swift, I have a best of Tay Tay playlist where I listened to her entire discography within like a couple days. And I, I put, all the songs I love of hers. And it ended up being like a hundred songs out of the, I don't know, 107 songs that she has. So literally every Taylor Swift song I moved over there. So now you're guilt-free to say anything about any artist if you have any guilty pleasures. So I love it. I love it. I'm uh <laughs> I, I I there's a reason that that stuff is so well loved, right? It's it's I, I, I'm, I'm reminded of my Spotify best of 2021 or whatever. And, uh, I, I, I think the number one artist on there was either Justin Bieber or Taylor Swift. And, and like, you know, I'm supposed to be this like cool artist or something, but, but Hey, 70 million people, I can't be wrong, uh, with, with their monthly Spotify listeners. So there you go. Absolutely. So to, to wrap up kind of the, the growing up and earliest musical memories as, as a young musician, we're normally told by our our family, by our friends, by our teachers to to play it safe. Man, get that education, get that good job. Um, you know, a, a career in the music industry, that's one in a million. That's a pipe dream. Did you ever deal with resistance from others? And if so, how did you overcome that or push through it? I mean, my answer is is yes and no, because mostly no because i as i said i moved out when i was 16 and so the the sort of traditional family structure and sort of parents being involved in your day-to-day goings on was was just not there um and so i i was like when i when i switched from pure and applied science into creative arts. I did that when I was in Sejep. I don't know if people don't know what Sejep is. It's like these sort of two transition years that happens in Quebec between high school and university where you're, you're not as general as high school, but you're not as specific as university. So you're kind of funneling towards a, a career path, but you don't have to decide quite yet. Anyways, um, I switched from pure and applied science into creative arts and I didn't tell anybody. I just went in and did that, walked into the registrar's office and told my parents afterwards. And, and 
they they knew that I was going to do whatever it is I was going to do. Now, that said, uh, there definitely were anxious moments or conversations around like, hey, you love performing. Well, lawyers like perform in the courtroom. Um, and there was there was that sort of gentle nudging. And uh, yeah, I mean, the overarching thing is my parents have been very supportive and and it's like I still felt their anxiety sometimes around around me doing this. And quite frankly, I had anxiety around it. It's, it's not an easy path. They're not wrong. Um, they're, they're not wrong that this is a very difficult path to choose. But I, if there, this is what I had to do. Like, I, I honestly, in a way, it's like I almost would preferred that there was something else that made me just as happy or feel fulfilled. Um, but Paulo Coelho writes in The Alchemist, like, once your heart has spoken to you, you can never unhear it. And so it's like a blessing and a curse for your heart to speak to you because you've heard it and now you have to do something about it. Otherwise, you'll live your whole life thinking, oh, I should have done that. Now, that said my career has evolved and and i i know we'll talk about this later but the 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 way that i offer my music to the world of course i'm still working on a new album i'll still be playing concerts but i also do keynote concerts and i do other things i do youth mentoring work which involved in my music and so there's all kinds of other branches that have emerged by me being on this path and some of those things are are more reliable on the income front than uh, than just the pure getting in a van and and driving around the world uh, path. So I've kind of evolved in my own life as far as some of the the security that I want to have, and 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 there's been opportunities that have emerged as a result, though, of having gone fully all in on doing this thing. So when in the early days of, of me getting into music and probably the moments where my parents were probably the most anxious was when I was playing 150, 200 shows a year, driving in a van, like sleeping on floors, driving through snowstorms, not making any money. Um, but I had a very clear sense inside of myself that the only way I was ever going to have a shot of, of being successful at this was if I did it all the time. Like I needed, it couldn't just be something that I did once a week. If I wanted to become great, I needed to 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 do the thing that I wanted to be great at as much as humanly possible. So um there was definitely some resistance but not much and and generally it's been it they've been very supportive. The the way that I look at resistance from people that I love or that love me is you know they they want what's best for you and they they fear what they don't understand and the music industry. Most people don't understand how it works. They just, they've heard over years and years that, you know, people in the industry do nefarious activities and it's one in a million and it's impossible to make it. It's a lottery ticket. So they still see you as cute little baby Peter in diapers that they want to protect. Uh, so they think maybe your life would be easier if you, you had that, that straight job with that straight paycheck. So, you know, the resistance, even though it could be a negative thing, a lot of times I see it as just other people wanting what's best for you and, and maybe an easier path. Um, we've been talking about amazing singer-songwriters, so I actually have some kind words sent in from a Juno award-winning singer-songwriter. So this is from Tommy Swick. So he mm. says, I respect Peter completely. 
I think he's a fantastic singer, a fantastic songwriter, and a musician. He's definitely a guy who has worked unbelievably hard at his craft and on pretty much every aspect of being a working musician. He is an extremely talented and very nice person. So that's Juno Award winner Tommy Swick. Oh, that's nice. I I well, thank you, Tommy. If you're listening, I appreciate that so much. And um, I remember being handed my friend Dave Stelling, who worked, uh, I think he still works at at, at, at Warner EMI, I think at Warner, um, uh, handed me a demo. It was like a four-song demo. He's like, you gotta listen to this. And it was you know, Sharpie on a CD, Tommy Swick. And there was, it was four songs on there and I put it on. I was like, what is this? Like this guy can sing. These songs are incredible. And sure enough, those, those ended up being like a night like this. And like these, these songs that ended up going on to being his big singles. I, I remember hearing that those demos. So a lot of love and respect for Tommy, just a unbelievable singer songwriter, just like pour like spills over the stage when he's performing. So that's amazing to hear. So let's dive into all your albums now. And and before we get into them, you you had mentioned earlier that your first three albums are not available. I can't find them on streaming sites. <laughs> so all the albums between 2004 and 2007, there's three of them. Uh, why would an artist not make those early albums available? So I, I know the answer because I didn't make my first few albums available. Uh, Friends of the yeah. podcast, The Standstills, don't have their first few albums available. Why would an artist not have them up? Well, I, I mean, I, I guess I start by saying I'm I'm super proud that I made those albums and I wouldn't have made the albums that, I, that are available had I not first made those. But I think... Uh, like, I don't know if this is a, a weird thing to say, but like Picasso probably had some nice drawings on his mom's fridge. And at some point they're like, you, like you, you didn't like take them down. Not that I'm saying I'm Picasso, but like, I think there's a, there's a, there's a sort of learning curve where you're, you're trying to make things and you have to put them out there and you have to iterate and try things. But especially in, in today's world where, you never know kind of what, what people are going to find first. And you, you sometimes only have one chance to make that first impression. I just wanted to, to sort of steer people towards the things that they, they, they might be more inclined to, to like. And that for me, were just more examples of me as, as a bit more fully realized as a, as a, as a singer songwriter. And, and to be honest, it's, it's hard to even leave some of the, older stuff that is available out there because there's, there's certain parts within it that I'm like, ah, oh, like, but, but you, you can't always be trying to rewrite history. And and I, I feel like they're, they're good enough for, for me to have them, them live and sort of be part of my chronology or chronological order, whatever it is, history. You you, you had mentioned to me uh, earlier that there's a, a few songs like Posters and Forgiveness that are on the earlier albums that you 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 love, you're super proud of. Are, are you able to keep those alive by like playing them live or something? How do you keep these these great songs going? Well, Posters actually has a, a really beautiful music video that I it's funny. I, I was working with a producer the other day and for whatever reason, we watched that video because to hear the song and, and it, it it's held up over time. I, I feel like I, my singing is a little, I'm still slightly in the music theater land. It's a little melodramatic still, but overall I'm, I'm like, no, that song's 
sounds awesome. And, and so it's on YouTube, so you can find it if, if you want to see it. And I, I think it's, the video is actually amazing. Um, and forgiveness has, has had a life of its own uh, just because of the, the story behind it. I, I wrote it for um, this man, Michael Berg, whose son was, uh, you know, tragically kidnapped and murdered in Iraq and, and this whole story. And, and uh, I actually heard that story on CBC radio and then sent it to CBC radio. They aired my song inspired by their interview and um the, Michael and I actually ended up becoming friends he and then they actually interviewed both of us on air and and so they've they've re-aired that many many times and and there's actually sort of a landing page on on one of the, their shows as it happens there where they talk about the song and the story and I do a live version of it so it sort of has had its life on its own and it's also a song that I I play periodically live depending on uh, the audience, it's often a song that people still request or depending on what's happening in the world or the the, the work that I do with youth, that song is often an appropriate song. So it's kind of have has a life of its own. And I've thought about doing another version of it at some point uh, just to to have a, a more updated version of it, I guess. So anything's possible. So the the Peter Katz fans already know your music. They already love it. They're familiar with it. But for some of our listeners that tune in every week to the podcast, regardless of who the guest is, for those of our listeners that haven't heard your music yet, how, how do you describe the music? Well, I, I mean, it, it certainly has changed a lot. I think if you listen to still mind still. And then you listen to we are the reckoning. And then you listen to city of our lives, you're going to hear a very, very different, uh, very different experience uh, of the music. But I think at its core, I tend to write about human interest topics. Like I, 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 I anything that kind of hits me in the heart, whether that's something from my own life or a story that I've heard out in the world, if something like stops me in my tracks that's what i tend to write about for for better or for worse um and and i guess musically there i i think i'm always kind of wearing my heart on my sleeve in a way like it's i'm not really sort of playing a character it's 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 me it's honest it's human and whether that's produced as a pop song or that's produced as a folkier song or electronic or, you know, wherever the different places that I've taken it. Um, I think there's, there's a, there's a heart and soul, a deep care and a deep um, desire to be kind of connected to humanity through the music. So before we dive into the 2010 album, first of the last to know, uh, you have a 2008 song called The Camp Song. Now, this song yeah. is is a part of the repertoire for all these different camps in Canada. Can you can you talk about that song? How did that come to be, I guess, the, the writing of it? And then how did it become kind of this theme song for different camps? Not just in Canada. That song is a theme song for camps literally all around the world. And um, it's funny, <laughs> like I... I love that song. I'm super proud of it. It's led to like amazing, all kinds of incredible experiences in my life. Uh, and it's also often my number one song on Spotify. It's just like, it's still number two right now. It's yeah. number two. And, yeah. and, like, I'm just like desperate to let some of the newer music kind of be the first things that people find. Um, but I'm not going to pull it off Spotify because you know, it's, it's very well loved. Uh, um, 
but it's it's like it's funny to me that I can't I can't sort of get the other music to surpass that song. You um, can't but escape the, that song, yeah. No, and and again, I I I'm I'm deeply proud of it. Um, uh, I wish I could like update the recording slightly, but it is what it is. Um, the uh, the way that that song came about was the International Camping Fellowship. It's a it's a professional organization for for camps they they do a they do a conference actually every four years so it's kind of a big deal um and they get camp directors literally from all around the world to come together and share best practices about camping and um and they were looking for a new theme song and so um they reached out to me asking if i would write write a song on commission and and so i wrote that song i i grew up going to summer camp it's a big part of my life and and um and i sort of had a little bit of a mandate that i didn't want it to be sort of your typical camp song like one fish two fish you're like sort of like sort of you're like that's kind of catchy the, though yeah yeah it is true thank you maybe i'll write another one but i i wanted it to just be a song that kind of walked the line between something that people people who went to camp would really resonate with, but also just something um, that would kind of exist as a, as a folk song in and of itself. And so that was kind of the, the mandate that I'd set for it. So I wrote that song and the world premiere of the song was at this conference that had about a thousand camp directors from all around the world. So I played this song and all of a sudden it went boom to camps literally everywhere. I mean, there's camps in Turkey and in like China, like Germany, all around the world, they, they play this song and it's, it's gotten so big in that world that it's, people don't even know that I wrote it anymore. Like it doesn't always necessarily point back to me. In fact, a friend of mine, who's a camp director described uh, a scene between two of her staff and they were talking, you know, two of the counselors, they were talking about the camp song. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I love the camp song. And one person was like, who, who wrote the camp song? And one of the staff said, it was Bob Dylan. And then the other one corrected her and said, no, no, no. It was a guy named Peter Katz, but he died like 100 years ago. And they're like, oh, yeah, that's it. Um, so, you're, so, the, you're the stuff of like folklore legends. I like it. Exactly. So um, so it's I've had many camp folks say to me, like, Peter, when you're when you die hundreds of years from now, this song will still be played. And uh, if that's, if that's my only legacy, I'll, I'll still be proud um, that, that I actually just, um, I used to play at a lot of summer camps. I, I haven't been able to do it so much in, in uh, over the last many years, but there's one camp uh, that a friend of mine runs, Stu. Um, and they've been in, he's been running this camp for 30 years and, and he decided that this was their final summer. Um, and I've been playing for the staff every year for the last 13 years. Um, and so I was just up there about a, you know, a week or two ago for their final night, the final, is this the Alberta camp? Uh, no, that's the, the Alberta camp is the camp that, that I run. It's not exactly a camp, but sort of feels like a camp, but I um, no, this is YLCC is youth leadership, uh, camp. And, um, and, uh, anyway, so, to see the impact of the camp song on, on this group. And obviously I've been going there for 13 years and, and this moment of all of them, like just bawling their eyes out arm in arm, singing the camp song, like at the top of their lungs, it was, a, I'm getting goosebumps just talking about it. It was such a, such a special moment. So um, I feel 
I feel a deep connection to to camp. And for me, camp, I mean, even the lyrics of the song it, it, in the chorus is like, it's, it's not about the cabin walls or the trees or whatever. Like camp is a, is a feeling that you get and you could have camp in a parking lot if you have the right people. And camp for me was a place where I felt safe, where I felt uh, I could take risks. Camp is where I, I really fell in love with the guitar. It's where I learned to sing. It's where I learned my love of the outdoors. It's where I felt like much safer than I felt in the hallways of school. And, and so um, it is an honor that I get to sort of represent, I think, the, the, the incredible value of camp uh, through that song. Man, unveiling the camp song in front of the, the you know, a thousand camp counselor, camp counselors. That's like the perfect product getting it to the, you know, the perfect demographic, you know, the target audience like that. That couldn't be more perfect. It was, yeah, it was camp directors and it was, it was an unbelievable moment. I will never forget the feeling in the room as that song unfolded and a thousand people went like this. And it, it was, it was rapturous. <laughs> like the applause was, it was, it was very special. Are you familiar with the documentary Searching for Sugar Man? Oh, yes. I'm highly familiar. You're like the equivalent of that, where uh, in in another country, this guy's the stuff of legends like Bob Dylan. And then he's he's like some random dude in, in, you know, North America. And uh, people don't people don't know. So that's like you with the the camp counselors around the world. And they think maybe Bob Dylan sang that song. So anyways, (laughs) that just that documentary came to mind when when you were. I actually in one of my keynotes, I referenced searching for Sugar Man because the whole youth mentoring work that I do in Alberta, I had a bit of a searching for sugar man moment where uh, I, I went out to Alberta and I, I was invited to play this show in this beautiful theater in, in, in Fort McLeod, Alberta. I'd never been there before. And I was thinking like, who's going to come to the show? <laughs> like, this is like, you know, 300 seat soft seat theater. I've never been in this town. Like what's happening. And I walked out on stage and the place was packed and they knew all of my songs. Um, and, and, it turned out that this youth mentoring program had been using my music as part of their curriculum. Um, and they, so, you know, like hundreds of kids every summer were being exposed to my music, maybe being forced uh, to, to learn my music. And, uh, and they had organized this show as, as, as a recruitment effort to get me to come work for them. Cause they had reached out to my manager who had said, no, Peter's not a camp counselor. And so anyway, long story short, um, that's the 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 youth program that I run every summer. Um, I've, I'm actually now one of the session leads and I run 40 kids through this curriculum and we take them hiking and rock climbing, whitewater canoeing, but it's, it's not, it's not really about hiking and rock climbing, whitewater canoeing. It's about, uh, you know, facing your fears and developing empathy and supporting each other. And it's really just an unbelievable program called faces. And, um, so that was that was kind of my searching for Sugar Man moment where it was actually at a time where I felt like my music isn't working, like I'm not reaching people, it's not happening. And all of a sudden, this was happening behind the scenes and I had no idea. I, I was listening to a podcast recently where they said that um, women women can get together and hang out and and just talk like that's something that they're good at with their friends whereas guys need an activity to be happening for the excuse to be able to talk to their friends and it reminded me when you just said you know the canoeing canoeing and kayaking and rock climbing that 
basically for for guys like we never say like hey peter like let's just hang out and talk it's like hey the ufc event's coming up let's watch it and talk hey the hockey's coming up or there's a concert like it's like we need an excuse to talk with mm. our, our male friends so uh, i think that's awesome that at the camp you, you said it's not about the kayaking and the rock climbing it it's actually that's kind of just the the foundation that allows at least the 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 male the boy kids to be able to build those relationships is there any truth to that or am i just making stuff up here well i mean it's a it's very much a co-ed camp so it's, I, I i guess i would say that the the way that we use those activities at at the that the camp is is more it's more about teaching them that they can do hard things and so we put them in situations that are that are uncomfortable like it's uncomfortable to strap a 40 pound pack on your back and hike for 10 kilometers up a mountain and cook your food and like be a bit dirty and um like that's a challenging thing uh or to strap yourself into a harness and walk backwards over a hundred foot cliff and rappel down it Th those are all uncomfortable things but we we sort of teach them about becoming aware of their thoughts and their feelings and their actions and the interplay of those things. And as they are able to do this hard thing, we contextualize it in like, what else in your life is hard and challenging? What else in your life do you have difficult thoughts and feelings around that sort of stop you from moving into action? So I, I think it's more about the activities being a metaphor for other things in life that are challenging, but certainly, um, you know, I, I see what you're saying. And I think the idea of if we were just going to say, Hey kids, everybody come together and we're just going to sit around in a circle and talk. Um, I don't think that would be as effective as, Hey, we're going to do these activities. And what are we learning about ourselves as we're doing these activities? So the, the, the activity becomes the, the catalyst for, for the talking. Yeah. The, the example in the podcast was this group put out this promo that, Hey, like, you know, we're going to do this thing where guys can get together and they can talk, uh, they can talk and they can build relationships and like nobody would show up. And then all they did was put, uh, you know, every Wednesday, a group of guys is going to get together to build a shed and right. they can, you know, get to know people at that. And then suddenly like a hundred guys show up and as they're building the shed, they're talking to the other guys. And suddenly every week, hundreds of guys are showing up and it led to relationships. And um, so I thought that was, that was, that was pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. Cool. Yes, sir. So uh, diving into the 2010 album, first of the last to know um, if someone was like me, where they went through their your entire discography this would be the first album that they dive into so this is a great place to start uh was this was this album with the single dangerous and some of the other songs was that the first time that you heard your own music on the radio and if so what what, what is it like hearing your own song on the radio yeah i mean i would say with that album i heard i heard my song on like college radio and cbc radio and and not not sort of the commercial radio outlets in 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 that way um but it was the first time that songs started getting played beyond like i would be surprised like i'd be you know driving into a town and i would i would catch it on the you know the local station or that kind of stuff so um it wasn't really until brother that that it, there was like a a wider cast net i guess um and uh, so but 
I mean, just driving along and listening to CBC, which is like my favorite radio station. And, and I, I remember like driving into Halifax and, and hearing Stephanie Domet, who is the, who is the, the afternoon host there, like talking about Peter Katz and then playing my song. I was like, oh, you know, just, like just this, this rush of, of joy and surprise and this sort of sense of, Oh my gosh, this thing that I made that I hoped people would hear is all of a sudden being heard by potentially hundreds of thousands of people or whatever that might be. So um, it's, I, I think as a, as a creator, I mean, I don't know, I can't speak for, for anybody else really, but like you want your stuff to be heard. Like you, 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 you put so much into it. You give up so much in order to, to, to live this life. I think you want it to be heard. Like maybe for some people it's, it's just about creating the thing. And there is a, there's a deep challenge and satisfaction to all of that, but ultimately you want it to be heard. And so any, any moment that it cuts through like that is, is a, is a special one. It, it's validating. Um, and yeah, I, I love those moments. So you have you have some special guests on the album. You got some heavy hitters. So you have uh, Glenn Hasgard, who's like Grammy nominated. He's Academy Award winning for the movie Once, which is like a I want to say a cult classic, but it's bigger than a cult classic. Like everyone that's a musician knows that movie, loves the music, loves yeah. it. Um, there's him. There's Melissa uh, McClelland, who uh, I, I have a. a, a cool story with that I'll share after, but she's a part of White Horse. She's popular with her, her solo career. You can see her with Sarah McLaughlin. She's worked with Blue Rodeo with Matthew Good. I mean, she's, she's amazing. How, how do those two come into the picture uh, for, for this, the two songs on that album? Is there a prior relationship or is it just reaching out specifically for those songs? Yeah, so so with Glenn Hansard, actually, the the night that I decided to play music for the rest of my life was the night that I saw him play, and uh, he was actually opening the the Frames. His band were opening for Damien Rice at Convocation Hall, University of Toronto, and um, you know that was that was in two thousand and four, and I I had I had I had actually made I or I was almost done making that first album. I had already done the Laramie Project, but I I, I was. I was right on the cusp of am I gonna am I gonna be a, an actor or am I gonna do this music thing? And uh I saw Glenn play and that that was the moment that I I decided. And after the the concert, I was I just had this feeling that I just didn't want to leave. So I was outside of the venue and I was just like I was just like overcome with with emotion. And um and Glenn walked by on his way to the tour bus and I walked up to him and I, I, I was kind of speechless because I was just so overcome with emotion. I was trying to express to him just, you know, what, what it had meant to me. And, and, and he just kind of locked in and tuned in. He said, what are you doing right now? I was like, nothing. He's like, come here. So he brought me inside the venue, brought me up on the stage. He's like, check it out. It's pretty awesome. And then, um, then he took me downstairs and introduced me to Damien Rice and Lisa Hannigan and the rest of the frames. And he said, let's, we're going out for drinks. You want to come? And so I went out, we went out to this bar and, and 
<laughs> had a whole bunch of drinks and I how, was how is this a real thing that happened this is like the stuff of of like uh of of dreams like this is crazy yeah it was crazy so he was just an incredibly warm kind human being and I talked to him a bunch that night I talked to Lisa Hannigan I talked to you know, all all the guys and the, everybody and and then um and then they got on their tour bus and they they went away and I I figured this guy's never going to remember me. Um, uh, but, but um, what an amazing experience. And, and from that moment on, I was fully committed to my music career and, and, uh, and kind of fully dove in. And anytime Glenn would come to town, I would always go to the show and he, he would always uh, like kind of recognize me, um, and he'd smile. But again, I didn't really figure that he knew me that well, but after one of the shows, uh, I had made my more nights album. And I thought, okay, this, this album is pretty decent. And I gave it to him. And again, he said, thank you. Um, you know, got on his tour bus. I figured whatever. And then about a year later, he was back in Toronto and uh, he saw me in the audience and he like stopped the show. and was like, he was like, Peter Katz. He's like, your album is brilliant why don't you get up here and play one of these songs for this crowd of people? So he called me up on stage and the whole band just like backed me up and I played till you come home. And, uh, was it, yeah, I think that was the, the first one. And, uh, and he like sang along and, and, uh, it was kind of mind blowing. And so I was how, like, Oh, how, he is, actually how is that your life? Like how I don't, it's crazy. It was pretty wild. And, and so then I, I, uh, and then I was at South by Southwest soon after that. And his manager was speaking on a panel. And so I kind of made a point to, to, to sort of gently hunt down his manager and just talk to him and say, Hey, you know, Glenn has been so, so kind to me. And I, I gave, I gave his manager, I think a copy of the album. And, and so I had a little bit of rapport built and, um, and then I was making the first of the last to know, and Glenn was playing at Massey hall. And the studio that I was working at was five minutes away. And I was like, oh man, like maybe I could like Glenn's in town at Massey Hall. Like maybe I could, I could get him to sing on the album. So I reached out to the manager, just kind of a, a Hail Mary pass saying, Hey, is there, is there any way? And the manager wrote me back within hours, like very quickly said, pick him up at noon at Massey hall, have him back by two and he's yours for two hours. So I picked him up in my minivan and I went, I, I remember I got the whole thing like detailed and cleaned. I had like snacks. I picked him up, got in the car, went to the studio. He was delightful to work with just the warmest person. He I think like upgraded our seats that night, went to go see him sold out show at Massey hall. He gave me his cell phone number. He's like anything you need. And, and, um, and he's, yeah, he's, uh, he's been one of the biggest influences, probably the biggest influence on my music career, not just on the musical side, but more than anything, the way that he treated me, cause he was selling out Massey hall. Um, but he didn't, separate like he didn't treat me like i was nothing i think he saw that i was passionate about music i was serious about it i i was 
um, I was like doing it for real. And, and so he was so kind to me and other times when he came to Toronto, we would go, I remember being at the Drake hotel, just having a drink and him reading like Leonard Cohen passages to me and just being like, listen to this. And just like talking about music and just always treated me like a friend. Um, and there's been other instances where we were both on tour. We were in Copenhagen one time and I was playing a small place and he was playing this giant, beautiful place. And, and I went to the, his show, I guess his show was the night after mine. And again, he knew I was in the audience. He called me up on stage, gave me lots of, lots of kind of credit. He's like, you guys got to hear Peter Katz and had me play a song. And so I, I, I have tried to do that in my career with other artists and other aspiring songwriters and just really anybody who, who, who makes that effort to connect. I, I I've, I've tried my very best. It's not possible to get back to everybody all the time, but I, you know, I will sometimes, even if it's six months later, I'll try to get back to people and, and just, Glenn is the one that taught me kind of how to, how to treat, treat people. And, and so I, I just, I'm deeply grateful to him. Man. And, and two hours is not a lot of time to, to record and get things perfect. So he must've been just ready to rock and roll and delivered the goods. Yeah. He just came in the mic, everything was set up and, and he just, I, I think we did like a couple of takes and that was it. And uh, he's on my album forevermore. <laughs> how did uh, Melissa uh, come into play for you? Yeah, so Melissa and I actually we did the college circuit together, and so we a, a lot of the colleges would do these kind of songwriter in the round things, and so the first time Melissa and I met, we were both booked to do one at I think Cambrian College up in Sudbury, and so I I I, I think I just reached out to her and said, hey, if you want a carpool, I'm driving up, and so she's like, that sounds great, and so. I remember pulling up at her house at like six in the morning. She had a pillow and, and her guitar. And, and we, we spent four hours in the car each way. And we, we did that a couple of times. It's gigs in Ottawa. And, and, um, and I was a genuine fan of what she did. I just thought like, she's just one of the best of the best out there. And, and so I would go to her shows and just, I just loved, loved. I mean, I, think she's incredible. And, and so I think part of connecting with artists the same way I, I you know, connected with Glenn or whatever is, is just being genuine. And I think people, people pick up on, on your genuineness and you're, you're not like trying to get something from them. It's like, you really love their music and you, and you, you're making music too. And, and you're, there's a, there's a kinship there, I think. And, and every artist at some point, was trying to make it. <laughs> and so, um, so yeah, I, I, I just asked Melissa and, and she, she said yes. And it was, it was awesome. And, and what was awesome was when she sent it back, um, uh, Luke Doucette, you know, her husband had also said, Hey, I'm going to lay down some guitar on that. So all of a sudden Luke was on there on, and, uh, and, uh, yeah. And I should mention the other special guests on the, on that album are the good lovelies. And, uh, they, you know, they were dear friends of mine and actually, we did a tour together on the East coast and they were opening for me. And by the end of that tour, I was opening for them because their star was on the rise. That's amazing. My, uh, my, yeah. my funny story with Melissa is, um, you know, I've, I've had her on Facebook for years, just two musicians kind of in the same industry. And, um, 
I had reached out to her um, for uh, a quote, for some kind words for one of my my guests, Cassidy Taylor, a singer-songwriter, uh, because I knew they had, had worked together at some point. And so she provides an amazing quote for Cassidy. And without me knowing, so that night, so Blues Fest is happening in Ottawa, massive festival here in Canada. And that night I go to see um, Sarah McLaughlin. And I knew that Melissa had a history with Sarah McLaughlin. But so I get the quote that day. And then that night I'm at the concert and I'm looking and I'm like, there's Luke Doucette. And yeah. there's Melissa on bass and and singing backups with Sarah McLaughlin. I didn't realize that the person I had talked to during the day would be the person I was going to see uh, at night. Mm. So that was kind of a funny coincidence. Yeah, Melissa's there, just amazing. And uh, and I I think I think musicians. I think it's important that you just see yourself as another human being, right? And I, there's this sort of. Uh, idolization or whatever that happens, but I think uh, that's a slippery slope <laughs> to go down. And so, like, I, I think, yeah, Melissa, Glenn, they're just very down to earth, good people and doing good work. So in 2011, you release a CD and DVD combo. So this is Peter Katz and Friends live at the Music Gallery. Uh, where did the idea of releasing a live album and DVD come from? And this is an important one because this is where the Juno nomination comes in. Uh, so where did the idea come from? And what does that Juno nomination mean to you, knowing that your country, you know, the equivalent of the Grammys here in Canada, your country acknowledges your hard work and your talents? Well, this is a very funny story. Um, <laughs> so I was simply doing a live concert, but I I, it, I had opened for Glenn by that point. And when I opened for Glenn that night, I, I think I sold 250 albums or something and it was in Toronto. And so I all of a sudden went from kind of trying to get my friends and family out to a show to there was just a whole bunch of strangers that wanted to come see me play. And so... I I was playing at the music gallery, of course, is the name of the album. And I think it holds like 200 people and I had sold it out. And so that was that was kind of a new phenomenon. And I, I didn't know the people that had bought the tickets, right? And and so a friend, a dear, dear friend of mine, Justin Broadbent, who does all, pretty much all of my album artwork, um, does kind of art installation stuff. So him and his sisters came in and had done all this cool art installation and I had hired a lighting guy. And I got, you know, I just, I was like, okay, I'm going to make this as an amazing show. Cause this is, this is, this is sort of my level up moment here. And my mom couldn't come. <laughs> and so I was like, I was like, oh, I just, I want my mom to like see this. And so I, I thought that I would get the audio recorded. And so I, uh, so I, I reached out to a guy uh, to capture the audio and he's like, yeah, sure. 500 bucks. I'll, I'll capture the audio. I was like, great. Um, and at the same time, I had been friends with this guy, Tim, who had made the music video for posters. And I literally invited him just as a guest list. I said, Hey, it was awesome working with you. Would you like to come to this show? And he's like, sure. He said, do you have anybody filming it? I said, no, I, I wasn't really planning. And he said, well, why don't I just bring some couple of cameras and I'll just shoot this for you for free. And I was like, well, of course, why I'm going to not going to say no to that. So he brings a couple cameras, shoots the thing. This other guy captures the audio. Another friend of mine 
He said, Hey, uh, I'll, I'll mix it for you for like a couple hundred bucks. So I like the total investment in this was, was, was less than a thousand dollars. No intention of making a live album or a DVD or any of that, but it just kind of came together. And then I was, you know, you submit your songs, you submit your stuff to the Junos every year. It's just what you do, right? You just submit. And, um, and I remember I was on tour in, in the UK and I was having lunch with some friends of mine there and my phone was on the table and it was on silent. But every time a message would come in, it would vibrate and it, it was possessed all of a sudden. It was, it was like vibrating off the table. And I'm like, I'm like, sorry, I think something's happening here. And I pick up my phone. It's like, you have 300 new messages. And it was, it was like the Juno nomination. And I just couldn't believe it. It was, it was, it was not even a possibility anywhere in my brain that that was going to happen. And it happened. And it's the reason I find part of this so humorous is because there's music videos and things and albums that I've spent 20, 30, 40, $50,000 on to create and a deep amount of attention, intention and strategy. And this thing that was kind of had no plan behind it is the thing that, that works. And I remember as part of the Junos, uh, the Toronto international film festival profiled like the people that had made like, you know, um, music DVDs and stuff. And so I literally was on stage at the Tiff Bell light box and my fellow nominees were Rush, Feist, Tegan and Sarah. <laughs> and, Just the uh, greatest and, Canadian artists of all time. Yeah. And, and David Francie, who I love as well. But like the, the guy, the, the people from Rush were talking about, oh yeah, we, you know, we had a million dollar production budget and blah, blah, blah. And they're like showing footage. And then I'm sitting there on stage and I was like, I just made this to show my mom. And, uh, and I think there actually is a lesson in there that, that the authenticity, the, the, in a way, the, the just kind of organic nature of it. I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm shooting a concert right now that I, I was just focused on connecting with the audience. I was just doing my thing and it happened to be captured. And, um, I think that's why it was special. And, and that's why probably it, it kind of stood out and, and got the nomination so crazy when you when you looked and you were getting like 300 messages normally that's like the worst case scenario like somebody yeah. passed away and in your case it was like the absolute best news that someone could receive it was it was mind-blowing and i also re i recognized in that moment that that was a game changer as far as and everything that would come later because every time i've been introduced ever since 10 years later they say Juno award. I mean, you said it too, right? It's like, it's, 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 it's part of my thing now. And it's, 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 it's really helpful. It it's incredibly helpful to just, I think all you're trying to do as an artist is just, like I said, you just want people to hear you. You just want people to, to take notice. Um, although I'd add one important caveat or distinction to that, that Glenn Hansard, I heard him say, he said, you spend your whole life knocking on the, the door of the world saying, Hey world, pay attention. Hey, I have this thing. And at some point, if you're lucky, the world turns and looks at you and says, what? And, uh, and he said, your job is to make sure that when the world turns and looks at you and says, what you have this ready to go. Um, and so 
as much as it's it's awesome to 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 have that nomination i also see that you need to to always be working on the thing so that when you do get the opportunity people are you've got something that you've that's of of a quality that's that's worth noticing cuz you could jump up and down trying to get people to notice you but if you're not ready when they do notice you then then that's when you got a problem i think so in in 2012 you release the album still mind still uh mm-hmm. there's a song walking asleep that has a spoken word section have you ever mm. considered doing a spoken word album you've done a french album so there's precedence of yeah. doing things differently I mean, I, I haven't like seriously considered doing a spoken word album. I, 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 there's some people that I deeply admire. Uh, there's a incredible artist in Tanya Davis, who's just, I think one of the best of the best. Um, uh, so, but I, I certainly have a love for, for poetry. And, and when I write my lyrics, I, I see them as I want them to be readable. Like I, I want you to be able to pull up the lyrics and, and you'd be able to read them. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I've played around with it. I mean, I think if, if we fast forward to, um, city of our lives and you listen to a song like, uh, come down or I will never leave you or, um, everything is different. I'm definitely dabbling in the, in the spoken word, almost hip hop, realm as far as the way the, the cadence of those those lyrics and the like there's a tremendous amount of lyrics in a short amount of time right that's that's like what what great hip-hop lyrics are like or rap lyrics so i definitely have an affinity for for using language in that way but haven't sort of thought oh i should do a spoken word album the song Deer is my favorite song on that album. Uh, mm. Is there any insider insider information you can share about that song, whether it's the uh, writing of the song, the lyrics, the guitar? Um, you know, there's also amazing... Har- I've mentioned before that you have great harmonies. A second question is, do harmonies come easy to you? Like, do you hear mm. harmonies easily? If someone else is singing lead... Uh, you singing harmonies to them does that come do you hear them and it comes easily as well yeah so the backstory on deer is actually a pretty good one so i i was so this is connected back to the camp song so i was invited to germany to do a bunch of shows at camps summer camps there and um and i was i kind of had a lot of free time and and so i was i was noodling around on the guitar and uh, i ended up writing that guitar riff and i i just loved that guitar riff i was like oh man this is this is a great guitar riff but i loved the riff so much that it almost put this pressure on needing to have great lyrics to go along with it and i was totally stumped and i i had many 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 incarnations of of the lyrics for that song. And I just could never get it. Actually, I, I'm, I'm realizing I'm messing up the chronology. So I had written the riff before I was in Germany. Um, and, and I, I had, I remember recording the riff and like walking, going for walks and just listening to the guitar and trying to, trying to like write lyrics and it just wouldn't come, but I was in Germany and, and this is, this is the story I'm coming back to me now. And I was literally outside and there was like a beautiful moon and i sort of had this flashback to when i was at summer camp myself and there was like 
you know, girl that I was in love with and like, and, uh, and I don't know, these, those two things just kind of came together in my brain and this idea of like, like maybe under the light of the moon where it's like a little bit dark and we don't see each other so well, I can, I can kind of have the courage to tell you how I really feel. And so it was, that was the moment where this riff that I knew was a great riff came together with the, the image of the, the character in that song. And then, and then the lyrics finally just, just came easily. So that was the scene for that song. Um, to answer your question, as far as harmonies go, uh, it's funny, this goes all the way back to being like 16, 15 years old and wanting to sing along to rent. And I remember driving in, in my car, I guess it would have been 16 if I was driving in my car. And, uh, and I did not know how to do harmonies and, and it was like really difficult, but I was like, I'm going to learn how to do harmonies. And so from that moment on, anytime I was driving, listening to songs, I would try to harmonize and eventually I figured it out. And, and now it, it comes incredibly easily to me. I mean, I can harmonize along to a song I've never even heard before. And, and uh, it just comes easily to me, but it did not come easily to me initially. My my trick to to first learn harmonies was if I was listening to a song and I was singing along, but I wasn't singing the main vocal line and it still sounded mm. good. That means I had found a harmony. So that was that right. was my trick is trying to sing along, but not sing what the main singer is singing. So I actually to to connect it back to Melissa McClelland, I um I because she's a masterful harmony yep. singer. Um, but like early, it was pretty early days still when her and I connected and, and um, I, I was on my journey of learning how to get better at harmonies, but she invited me to sing, to get up on stage with her and sing harmonies. And I remember being terrified of this. And, and so I remember we were playing at the Casbah in Hamilton and I remember going out into my car and I... I had this, this, this notation system that I invented where I would track like where the harmony is supposed to go. And I, I had like a visual of where the harmony was supposed to go. And that kind of gave me the confidence that when I got up on stage with her, I, I was able to sing along, but that, that was a nerve wracking moment to, to sing harmonies with her. That's kind of proof of your engineer analytical mind. Yeah. You have to like yeah. physically chart it. Uh, exactly. I, I, I have some kind words sent in from Joa Carvalho, who is oh. an incredible mastering engineer. He's mastered over 2000 recordings. Uh, in, some people you might've heard of Rush, the tragically hip, the Smashing Pumpkins. He might've actually mastered the Rush DVD that you were uh, nominated against. Who knows? So uh, this is what he says. He says, Peter Katz, amazing. A gentleman's gentleman. Such a motivating, kind spirit. He inspired me to call my mom regularly. Ha ha ha. Uh, this is by text. Uh, and sources tell me if you get him drunk, he turns into the filthiest rapper around. And he has the <laughs> he has the hiding his face, embarrassed emoji. So that's Joa Carvalho. Uh, any truth to this uh, having a few drinky poos and letting loose? Well, that's funny. I, I'm not much of a drinker anymore, um, but uh, I was I was well known for um especially in university um for uh freestyle rapping and um and i know what he's referencing because uh <laughs> we work uh a lot with a wonderful uh, engineer producer mixer named tim abraham 
and uh, Tim produced more nights. And uh, I, I wasn't drinking, but I would sporadically uh, go into freestyle raps uh, when I was in the in the booth with Tim. And uh, Tim and Joe are very good friends. So I think those worked worked their way to uh, work their way to Joe. And you know, when you're just freestyle rapping, sometimes you just take it places that are are uh, NSFW. So um, there you go. We we all have that that shadow realm, that darkness within us, and sometimes you got to you got to get it out in non destructive ways. So it might as well by might as well be by uh, singing singing some rap songs. So. It's true. It's true. So in 2015, you released another album, We Are the Reckoning, and uh, the the title track to me, so that that kicks off the album. It, to me, it shows uh, a new maturity in your music. It sh- shows like an evolution of sound. Uh, the earlier albums were very kind of straightforward singer songwriter, and then this seems kind of like the bridge to the the newest album that's a little more electronic. Um, at what point did you start to think that you wanted to implement? more of that kind of production kind of the program drum synthesizers that kind of stuff well there's there was kind of two phases to that song so there, actually there's an interesting story around writing that song i was i was in a session that was supposed to be with three of us so it was myself uh justin glasgow who amazing songwriter producer musician um and this other person um who actually worked with taylor swift and uh and 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 we were in the studio and there was like taylor swift <laughs> albums gold platinum albums on the wall we're in this like beautiful studio um and so we were in there and kind of like scratching at stuff trying to like get ideas and i i don't remember why exactly but this third guy was like he had to go or something like he, he basically left and so it was just justin and i in this in this studio and we ended up writing we are the reckoning but it was just I think Justin was playing like a Rhodes and I was playing acoustic guitar and it was, it was kind of this, this more straightforward song, but we loved the lyrics. We were, we were just so excited about the lyrics. And, and, um, and so I took it to Bill Leffler, who was the producer that I was working with. And I mean, really all credit deserves to him. Uh, It goes to him because he, he had this machine like M A S C H I N E. It's like a sort of a programming kind of thing that allows you to, manipulate electronic music in in a more organic way um it's sort of like playing electronic music and um he just had this idea for this loop that he built and i went in he's like just sing he's like just just sing over this just sing over this and so i went in and i sang the song which to, to me is just like okay i'm laying down a scratch vocal and he's like perfect and and that's the vocal that's on the album. And and probably three or four times I went into other studios and tried to re-record the vocal. I was like, no, 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 I'm going to do it better. And he's like, no, that's that's it. Like that moment is it. And he was right. Um, but he was the one that that sort of nudged me in that direction. And and I was like, wow, this is I never would have done this in a million years. And I absolutely love this. So I think, yeah, all credit to to Bill Leffler and 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 actually Royal Wood was the co-producer on that album who added some some of the organic elements as well. So it kind of kind of bridged the gap. So speaking of Royal Wood, this is the album that has the song Brother on it featuring Royal Wood. Uh, great song. You mentioned that's the f- first time that you start to get a lot of radio play outside of, you know, just traditional uh, college radio. Uh, I actually remember 
that music video that's what stands out to me is i remember mm. seeing that music video being played um can you give us some some ins insight into that music video it's it's simple looks great just it, it kind of lets two amazing singer songwriters be natural and do their thing what, what are your thoughts on that music video so well there's there's a kind of two videos that that have done the rounds on the internet out there there's there's the live version of royal and i doing it in the front room of the of the uh, of the great hall actually. And that was, that's just uh, Mitch Fillion from Southern souls um, literally capturing us live. And a lot of people love that version of it. And then so there's that's also the one, the, that's the one that I'm, Oh, that's the one that I was. Okay. Yeah. There. Well, there's also the, the Christopher Mills kind of music video, music video, which I also love where we got a whole bunch of siblings uh, of all ages and, you know, to come in, that was a beautiful day, but, but that live video, um, yeah, it's funny. Royal and I were were going to be doing some touring together, and and um, he was going to open for me in Europe, and I was going to open for him in Canada. And and um, I think my manager at the time uh, said, "Hey, you guys should like do a song together." So credit to to Sean Russell for that. And um, and so we sat together, wrote the song, and and it was just this kind of magical moment where we were talking about our siblings and our families and I'm the baby of, of four and Royals, one of five siblings. And we kind of got this older brother, big brother relationship. And, and in many ways, like Royal and I kind of have that older brother, big brother, and he's, he's not much older, but you know, year or two older than I am. And, and certainly he was, uh, you know, further ahead in his career and somebody that I really looked up to and admired. And so, um, and, and still do. And so it was this great, great kind of, moment and i think we kind of captured the spirit of it in that in that video where we're we're just playing it live we're connecting with each other i i had the idea to build a little loop to it to have have a little bit of a, a rhythm track underneath of it and that i was really kind of getting into looping at that time so um yeah i i think we did one take maybe two takes at most royal's a guy that just nails it right away uh he's definitely a guy that Kind of forced me to level up uh, just the, the way that he just comes in and, and does things with just utter confidence and and uh yeah i think mitch did a great job just capturing that moment and and it, i think sort of like the the dvd no nomination with the juno it was one of those things that we didn't really overthink uh it was like here's okay this sounds great let's capture it not we're going to storyboard this whole thing and come up with a giant plan and bring in 47 people to film it and rent locations. It was just like, okay, let's just do this. In 2017, you release your French album, La Somme de Tous Nos Efforts. That's the most French I've spoken in, in a long time. Uh, where did the idea to release a French album come from? And is it true that it, that's considered the French version of the album, We Are the Reckoning? To me, the songs were, were a little different. So I don't know if I'm correct or incorrect there. Yeah, I mean, it's essentially the French version of We Are the Reckoning. I, I I did a couple of different things. Like I ended up doing a French version of Dear that I pulled in, and there's some songs from We Are the Reckoning that that aren't on there. But but essentially, it it is a French version of We Are the Reckoning. Um, and the reason that that happened was initially we just did a French version of Brother, um, and so there was a pretty big star in Quebec named Rémi Chassé, and um, and obviously I grew up speaking French. So I, I speak French pretty much as well as I speak English. And, and, and so I loved the idea of kind of representing that part of myself. I loved the idea of doing a French version of brother. And so we had Rimi sing Royal's part. 
and we released again, it was just supposed to be brother, but the French version of brother ended up being on top 10 commercial radio in Quebec. It, it was like, to this day, you'll still hear it in the mall um, in Quebec. And so there, there was that, and that was the best commercial success I had ever found. And so I thought, well, um, might as well do more of this. And I was, I was uh, touring with another great Quebec artist named Yann Kelly. And, and, um, and so I thought, well, what, what if I just did a whole album? So we did, did a whole album based on the success of brother and, and, um, and did a bunch of touring in Quebec um, to try to kind of follow it up. And what kind of opportunities presented themselves with now having a, a French album and a top 10 single in French on the radio? And uh, last thing about that is I, I remember, so again, we've been friends for whatever, about a decade on Facebook. I remember at one point your Facebook name was Pierre Le Chat, which I thought oh, yeah, was yeah. clever. Was that around the time of the French album or am I looking too much into that? Well, no, the re it's funny. The reason I changed it to Pierre Le Chat was because I was trying to, I was trying to, I forget this advice of somebody at the time was I was trying to sort of separate out Peter Katz personal from Peter Katz. And this was a time where like Facebook pages had emerged. And so I wanted to drive people to Facebook page and I wanted to just use Facebook to sort of just be in touch with my friends and in that kind of social way. Um, and I was, I was starting to hit the 5,000 friend limit. Um, so I, I changed my name to Pierre Lachat briefly to try to segment these things, but it didn't, didn't really work. And, and so, and then Facebook wouldn't let me change it back. So, so I just like, like it was like, like that I don't for know a why. while, I think, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes. I, I think it might still be like that if you go to my personal page. So I just kind of gave up on, on, uh, on trying to, so now I exist in both places. It is what it is. That's funny. That's funny. So we've made it all the way to uh, City of Our Lives, your album that you released in 2020. How how has the feedback been uh, in response to that album over the last two years? So this this comes out in, I think, November 2020. This is like a pandemic album. So we'll talk about the challenges and everything afterwards. Well, I tell you, it's a it's a complicated it's a complicated answer. Um City of Our Lives, I worked on for the better part of five years. Uh, and it was, well, I mean, I guess more like took five years to get it out, but like probably, you know, three years of three and a half years of, of deep work and um, recording, re-recording. Like it was, it, I put, that was like the biggest swing I've ever taken in my life uh, of really going for something. And, and there was just, um, a series of unexpected tragedies uh, that happened around trying to get that album out. So, some, some of which are, are, are really sad to, to talk about. And, and, um, and so after all of the ups and downs and things that we're going to that we're looking literally like world domination for that album. And it's very, high powered people that love the album that were going to take it places. And, and just a lot of, uh, I mean, literally there was people who died and there was, uh, there was very unexpected things that happened. Um, after all of that, uh, it, it sort of came to, to um, a, a different release than I had anticipated. And it was scheduled to be released April 3rd, 2020. <laughs> Which would be like, 
two weeks right. after we officially had a pandemic. I think like March 17th is considered the pandemic yeah. start. Yeah. It was originally supposed to start like that. That album was originally going to start coming out in like 2018, 2019. And, and, and anyways, there was there was a whole sequence of events that we would need a whole other hour to talk about. Um, uh, and anyways, obviously pulled the plug on releasing it in April at the last moment after everything with the pandemic. And, and then I actually, I had to put it out in November um, because of some granting things that I'd had. And there's just sort of a limit to how long you can push things. And, and so I couldn't really do the thing that I do best, which is tour. And, and, and I I've built my whole career on, on touring and, and, and it really was a, it was it was it was nothing short of devastating to 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 not be able to give that album um the life that it it deserved and i i had so many people that believed in it that that and um so it yeah it was really difficult um to to not not give that album what what it deserved and not see it um have the life that that you know we all felt it it should have and um but it, life happens and and in the in the in the void of 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 not being able to tour that album and and do do all those things this other incredible part of my life emerged and the, the speaking work that I do and I built this whole virtual studio and this virtual setup and and uh, you know I just I just trust that everything happens the way it's supposed to happen and um we have some cool things in the in the in the vault still to give still mine uh, not, uh, to give city of our lives some life we, we shot a documentary we did a show at roy thompson hall that we captured um in a really beautiful way so uh hopefully there will still be a a life for it and and i think that the the good and bad thing is as an artist you're hopefully always growing and evolving and so i also want to make room for for new music and all those kind of things so i i don't exactly know how that's all going to play out but i know that city of our lives i think and and i feel like i can love it in a way almost objectively because it i don't see it as only me i like all the the producers and all the different people that were involved in creating it like that's not just me it's it's also derek hoffman and rich jacks and robin delunto and all, all these different people that that contributed how we back to that album and so i think like I put that album on and even though it's my name on the cover of the album, I love that album in the same way that I love some of my favorite albums of all time. Like I really think that it's a great pop album that I think it could stand, it could stand up against any other of the pop albums that I love. And I think it's that good. Um, and so I, I, yeah, I just hope and trust that it, it will still find its way. And, and it, I think it's a gem out there that's waiting to be discovered. Yeah, to me, listening to it several times, it 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 seems very focused. It seems like there's a cohesive sound all the way through the album, like like you had a vision in advance for what it would be. You mentioned uh, Derek Hoffman that produces produced it. That's a, a Juno nominee. Uh, he's worked with like Silverstein. I have a list here. So Silverstein, Arkells, The Trues, Donovan Woods, Alexis on Fire. Uh, I actually know him. We we're on the same season of Canadian Idol, which is going, oh, hilarious. Back, which yeah. is, which is funny. So super talented dude. Um, 
I'm actually a big Robin DeLunto fan and uh, uh, we go way back. I'm still trying to get her on this podcast. I can get stained. Oh. I can get finger 11, but Robin DeLunto, she's she's busy. So I'm still working on that. How much did uh, Derek Hoffman have to do with that that sound, that pop electronic sound? And so that's one question. The other one is, it, it seems that most of the drums are programmed curious if that is a choice because of the sound you're going for because of maybe Derek I don't know if Derek programs drums and the lot and and or is it because it's in the pandemic you're actually isolated you can't go and record a physical drummer no we, we recorded that album way before the pandemic so that that album that album was like mixed and mastered um way before the pandemic um and there was like I said there was there was a whole there was a whole thing that was supposed to happen with that album with like a lot of muscle behind it and um yeah there's just a bunch of things that that uh, tragically happened <laughs> um but um yeah derek definitely deserves enormous credit for the sound of that album and and um i i mean rich jacks that i wrote six of the songs with and he's the guy that i was working on on new stuff with um really deserves a lot of credit for kind of breaking me out of my shell and into like writing more pop music um and and derek is really the one that kind of found the sound um uh, i recorded that album many times with in other incarnations with super talented producers and people that i love and respect their work but we just i just wasn't getting the thing that I was looking for. And um, it was actually Robin DeLinto that connected me with Derek. She said, I think, I think this is the guy you're looking for. And as soon as I got in the room with Derek, I was like, this is it. And um, cause you know, Derek, Derek just brings, he's, he's a musician. He's a real musician. He can play any instrument incredibly well. He's a songwriter and he also has a mastery of the technology. And so he can kind of play the computer like you can play a guitar. And, and so the cool thing was Derek actually had all of this source material because I had actually gone into Revolution and I had recorded drums on some of those songs and we've recorded real pianos. And we like, so he actually took some of those real elements and then chopped them up. And, and, and of course he did a lot of programming and stuff like that, but we didn't, some of the drums that you're hearing, it's like a drum sample, but it's it's our drum sample. So that was a real drummer that was playing it, and then Derek chopped it up and sequenced it, or or those kind of things. So there there is a real kind of hybrid, organic, electronic thing that's happening on that album, whether you kind of realize it or not. Um, and it's like if you want to make a, a pop song, the, the drums can only be so loose. <laughs> like you, like you need to you need to beat detective that and, and get it tight. Otherwise it just doesn't sound like a pop song. And you, you, you kind of need some of those, those swells or those things that get you into the chorus. Some of those, those program things that that's what kind of makes it have that, that pop feel. And so I think Derek is just a really tasty person who knows how to use those things in a musical way. And it's, it's such a fine line that you're, you're walking and, and, Derek was the guy to, to do that. Yeah, De Derek, it, it reminds me of uh, Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails, where he'll record yeah. real drums and then really mm -hmm. manipulate them where it sounds like exactly. a machine, even though the source yeah. is an actual musician. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So I, 
I have notes on almost every song on that album. Like I listened to it. I have notes about how do you get this clap sound and this song is awesome and this lyric and all that. Uh, we are running out of time and I definitely want to talk about uh, the speaking engagements because I think that's important. Uh, last thing uh, about, about the music, I suppose, uh, you are currently working on new music and you, you said for you, this is another shift. Uh, can you give the Peter Katz fans any little nugget, any glimpse into what possibly they could expect from new music? Yeah, well, I... I, I've been so immersed in in this the speaking work that I've been doing that I I knew that I needed to kind of carve out some time to 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 reconnect with the 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 songwriting and I really see songwriting as one of the the hardest things that I do <laughs> and and I like to do the hardest things to 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 just kind of push myself and kind of see where I'm at and so I just carved out two weeks um, to work with Rich and didn't really have like often when you go into work on an album, you have a whole bunch of songs. When I went into city of our lives, I had 60 songs, but it was kind of a blank slate. Um, but what Rich and I did is we would get on zoom for, for the better part of a year, we would get on zoom and just do these kind of quote unquote writing sessions. But really it was us just talking, hanging out. I would always kind of take notes and and we sort of realized that we were aligned on this idea that the next batch of music that we wanted to make, we didn't want to make uh, kind of like relationship songs or like we it wasn't it wasn't really about the typical topics that we were we wanted to write about um, kind of these like deeper deeper truths like he and I are both into mindfulness and 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 kind of kind of looking at the world and and dropping into our hearts and like thinking about what the world needs and just like what kind of a space do you want to embody as a human being and i don't know, I don't know if it sounds like too woo woo or something to to talk about it but it we were like let's not worry about what genre or or kind of song that we want to write but let's let's embody the the energy that we want to be in and then see what comes. And so that's what we did is we just, just kind of hung out, had conversations dropped into our hearts, like went deep and wrote a song. And, and, uh, and I think the songs really captured this, this feeling that we wanted to give people, which is a feeling of, of comfort or catharsis or like allowing your emotions to flow, like with everything that's happened in the world, like there's trauma that's built up. It's like, how can this music be of service to people? Like, it's not just about me processing something. It's, it's how do I really show up in service of people? And that, so people don't walk away from the concert thinking, I'm amazing, but they're walking away thinking that me, the listener, the audience member is amazing. It's, it's like, how do I make it not about me, Peter, but make it about them. And I think that's kind of a good segue into, into the speaking work and, and the, the, the work that I'm doing. I don't just speak. I'm also like facilitating and like designing events and, and obviously I'm playing music and that's a huge part of it and storytelling, all of that's, that's a huge part of it. Um, but I think, the music that I'm making really kind of coincides with this 
shift that I've just been experiencing over the last couple of years through this speaking and facilitation work where I'm less interested in being like the sage from the stage and more interested in being the guide from the side where I'm using my skills and talents and as a, as a songwriter, uh, as a speaker, as a performer, um, in service of the people that have come there. So I can give you like a little example if it, if it helps kind of anchor, uh, like there's a song of mine called come down, uh, which is on city of our lives. And in the past, I might've, I might've told a backstory about, Oh, I was in LA and I wrote this song and I had just been here and was, had been talking to this girl. And like, I could have given that kind of a backstory around it. And then I think the listener would probably listen to that song through that lens of Peter's backstory. Instead, when I'm doing that song as part of a talk or a facilitation, or I say, Hey, this is a song about letting go. And, uh, you know, we all have things in our lives that we hold on to that we could probably let go of. And, you know, what is something that you're, you want to let go of in this moment. I mean, I give a longer preamble than that, but I frame, I, I tee the song up as it's not about me. This is a song about letting go. And what do you want to let go of? And how is this moment of service to you? And so that way, when I play the song, people are, are making it about them. And of course you could argue that that's what we all do as listeners of songs is we kind of make it about us. But I think you could sort of muddy the waters a little bit uh, if you kind of say too much before the song or it's too much about me and my life. And so that's been kind of my evolution. And when I think about this new music that I'm making, it's definitely I'm running it through that lens of, of how am I serving this up in a way that is going to allow people to really kind of meet this, meet it where they are. So we have a, a fan question. This is sent in from TikTok and it has to do with uh, you being in the schools and talking to young people. So this is from Don Quarles, who I know from Metalworks and who you might know, a great songwriter. Uh, his question is, do you still enjoy sharing your music with young people in schools? You were always amazing at it and the kids really enjoyed the music. So uh, that question. And then I want to know, what is a keynote concert? That's a term that you know, you use, keynote concert. Yeah. I mean, I absolutely, I, I, no matter how busy my schedule gets or whatever, I always carve out time to do stuff with young people. I mean, every summer I go out to Alberta and, and I, I do that, that mentoring work. Uh, I still do youth keynotes sometimes, not as much as I, I used to, um, but I still make time to do th them sometimes. And uh, I love connecting with young people. It's, it's, it's such a special time i think in 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 life especially you know young people that are sort of kind of trying to find their voices um getting passionate about music or just getting passionate about taking risks of any kind and the the keynote that i it's a keynote concert uh, so i guess i'll answer both of your questions at once here like a keynote concert is a, a keynote essentially that has music as part of it and and i use the music very intentionally so it's not just like here's a song and here's a me talking about something and here's a song. It's like the songs are providing the kind of musical anchors to whatever the the thing that I've just been talking about is, or if I'm telling a story, then the song kind of comes in. So there's this like interplay between the music and the, and the storytelling and the, you know, whatever my, if I'm working with a company and they have a specific thing that they're bringing me in for, whether that's, you know, employee burnout or wanting their people to feel you know, validated and seen or whether they just want to build emotional connectivity between, between people, like whatever the, the kind of mandate is, I'm using the music to, to help 
help anchor. Um, also, I do a lot of work with a, a brilliant resiliency and, and uh, resiliency and researcher and expert named Dr. Robin Hanley Defoe. We actually present together like scientist meets artist, and she talks about like the music transfer effect, and we actually process music in our amygdalas, which is kind of our feeling factory. And so when you play music, it actually allows people to drop into their hearts. It allows them to like calm down their, their, their nervous systems and their cortisol levels. And, and so there's all kinds of like scientific benefit around, around using music. So when I combine music with some of this, these messages that I'm trying to get across, it's, it's really a powerful thing. And I, I would say if my music career was this kind of very, very slow and steady build, my speaking career has been like the Justin Bieber trajectory where I entered that realm and it went boom in a big way. Um, and it's been kind of amazing, actually. So for our listeners that have been with us for the last two hours, uh, if they want to reach out to you, if they want to be in the loop for your concerts or your events, if they want to listen to new music, uh, then go to petercats.com on social media. It's at petercatsmusic. And as we wrap up, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge you um, for having the courage to pursue a career in music. It's not the easiest of careers, but by you um, having that courage and, and setting big goals and working towards them and accomplishing these goals, you show others what is possible and you give other musicians like myself permission to also uh, do something like uh, follow their dreams. Uh, I want to acknowledge you for making great music. That's the soundtrack to a lot of people's lives, including my own. Uh, I want to acknowledge you for the speaking that you're doing, that work uh, to inspire the next generation of, of future leaders and doing your part in making the world a better place. Um, and I guess last but not least, I want to thank you for taking the time to sit down with me. Uh, I've said it for the last decade. I've let you know that I'm a fan of the music, uh, the recorded music. I'm a fan coming out in concert. So it means a lot that uh, I'm able to get the inside scoop on your music, on your songs, uh, just as a fan myself. So thank you so much, Peter, for your time. I really appreciate it. Well, Joel, first of all, I, that's a, it's a beautiful that you would do an acknowledgement like that. So thank you. Thank you for that. That's a, received in my heart. And, uh, I, I just want to give you some kudos back. I, I do a lot of interviews and, um, just the care and the attention to detail and the preparation that you, you put into this is, uh, abundantly clear and is, is deeply appreciated. So I just want to acknowledge you for, um, for, for, for doing what you're doing and, uh, and just bringing so many, you know, so much background behind, behind great artists uh, out there. It's, it's deeply appreciated. So love right back at you. You're very welcome. And thank you so much for your kind words to our listeners, to the Peter Katz fans. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you on the next episode. If you've enjoyed today's episode of the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe, like, comment, and share. What I want to know is who would you like me to sit down with next for a two hour deep dive interview? You can let me know by reaching out to me on social media. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok at Joel Martin Mastery. Joel is J-O-E-L. And you can find me on Twitter and Snapchat at Joel Mastery. So I am done. I am complete. I approve this message. And I'll see you on the next episode.